This morning I'm going to be uh, preaching from Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 49 to 53, but I'm going to read um, the entire passage, Luke 49 to 59, uh, from, so from Luke 49, sorry, it's Luke 12, 49 to the end of the chapter, Luke 12, 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrite. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you'll never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of our Lord. May he add its, write its truths upon our hearts this morning. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, just judge. We pray as we consider this passage that you will help us to learn how to judge rightly. We pray, Lord God, that you will help us to learn how to judge the right things and to judge them in the right way. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to right, to judge them rightly according to your word in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we look at this passage this morning, may we judge our Lord Jesus Christ rightly and judge what he came to do rightly. And to judge ourselves rightly. under the light of His saving grace. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, confident that you will accomplish your will through, the, through your word. Amen. Well, I'm sure that most of us, when we've tried to share the gospel with someone, we've, we've heard them retort 
Judge not, lest ye be judged. What do you say to that? What do you say to somebody when they, when you're trying to share the gospel with them and they, they assume that you are judging them? And so they say to you, judge not, lest you be judged. So what do you say to that? What do you say to people when they say to you, judge not, lest you be judged? Well, Paul, Paul Washer says that his reply is always, twist not scripture, lest you be like Satan. Now it's true. Judge not, lest you be judged. It's true. It's in the Bible. It's biblical. This is a, a direct quote from our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 7.1. But was Jesus making a blanket statement here against all judgment? Was Jesus forbidding judgment altogether? Well, of course not. We need to consider what Jesus is saying in the immediate context of this passage. He says in Matthew 7, 5, You hypocrite, first take out the log from your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is saying here that before judging others, you need to judge yourself. Then you can see others clearly. Jesus is not banning all judgment here. Jesus is telling us how to judge. Likewise, in Matthew 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Or Romans 14, 4, who are you to pass Judgment on the servant of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. None of these verses is, is forbidding judgment. Rather, they're telling us how to judge. Do not concern yourselves with judging things that are not your responsibility to judge. But that does not mean that we are not to judge. Quite the opposite. There are many passages in Scripture that command us to judge, including Luke 12, 49-59. We must judge, but we must judge rightly. We must judge the right things. And we must judge in the right way. Now, this passage, Luke 12, 30, or 49 to 59, consists of three paragraphs. Now, at first, each paragraph seems to be dealing with a unique subject matter with three different topics. However, they're actually linked by a common theme. Again, the need to judge rightly. This passage is about judgment. It's about God's judgment versus man's judgment. If you not these judge these things rightly, you'll be under God's judgment. You need to judge rightly as to who Jesus is and what he came to do, or you will be judged by God. Now this fits the overarching theme of chapter 12 that we've been looking at over the past several weeks. Responding rightly to God through faith in Christ and obedience to Christ because of coming judgment. So the focus was and is on present faithfulness in light of future judgment. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 49 to 53, judging the earth. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 
44 to 50, sorry, 54 to 56, judging the times. And in verses 57 to 59, judging yourself. Judge rightly as to who Jesus is and what he came to do, or you will come under God's judgment. This passage begins with the enigmatic, enigmatic statement, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Now, when you hear Jesus saying, I came to, you need to sit up and take notice. This is a mission statement. The Lord is giving us important information here about the reason for his incarnation, about what he came to do. There are a few other examples of this, several other examples of this in the, in the gospel. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Mission statement. Matthew 9, 13, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mission statement. Luke 19, 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mission statement. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He's got a mission statement too, but Jesus comes to give life. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to call sinners. I've come to seek and save the lost. I've come that they may have life. Now those are all easy to understand. But what does Jesus mean when he says, I came to cast fire on the earth? Now there are many senses in in which Jesus came to bring fire on the earth, aren't there? But I believe here that Jesus is speaking primarily of the fire of judgment. The fire of judgment. After all, Jesus was just talking about this in the previous passage. This is all, I know we, we break it up, or your, your Bible breaks it up in, with little subheadings and whatnot, but this is all part of the same message. Jesus has just been talking about how the unfaithful servants will be punished by God in hell. Varying degrees of punishment for varying degrees of rebellion and disobedience. When we think about if you have a, a biblical theology of fire, think about fire through the Old Testament. It's often equated with judgment, isn't it? Think of, of God sending down fire to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 and to destroy the prophets of Baal in the showdown with Elijah, rather with Elijah's God in 1 Kings 18. But when we think of God sending down fire on his enemies, We think especially of the book of Revelation, where we see God sounding down fire on the earth in Revelation 8 and 13 and 14 and 20, where we see him casting the devil, the beast, and the false prophet, and all those whose names are not written in the book of life, all rebellious unbelievers, all unbelievers, into the lake of fire in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21. So so fire, quite often, most often, in Scripture, refers to judgment. Jesus came to bring fire on the earth. Jesus came to bring fire, to bring judgment on the earth or to the earth. Well, this morning we're going to see that the fire of judgment that Jesus brings takes three forms. The fire of the cross in verses 49 and 50. The fire of division in verses 51 to 53, and the fire of purification also in verses 51 to 53. You can see all of those throughout the scriptures as well, that, that these are all that these are all things that fire does. 
So there's the pain involved with fire. There's the division that, that is involved with fire and purification also from fire. And all of these, as we'll see, are forms of judgment. So first of all, the fire of the cross in verses 49 and 50. Jesus says that he has come to cast fire on the earth and that he wishes that we're already kindled. We don't have to wait long to find out what Jesus means. He says, tells us in the next verse. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So at least initially here, Jesus is, when he speaks of this fire that is coming, he's equating it with his baptism. Now this isn't a, a baptism of water. This is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of his suffering and his death. Jesus will tell James and John that they are going to be baptized with the same baptism, the baptism of suffering and death in Mark 10, 39, that they are going to follow him in the path of suffering. And I'm, I'm sure you know of the, the, the common link between baptism and death in the scriptures. What does baptism signify? What does our water baptism signify? It signifies our union with Christ in his death, and we come out of the water in his resurrection. Baptism and death. It's a picture of death. Romans 6, 3, and 4. Well, baptism is also a picture of judgment. Think of the waters of the flood, which, which Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, corresponds to baptism. So then the baptism that Jesus refers to is of his being submerged under God's judgment for the sins of his people. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. So Jesus here is eagerly anticipating the kindling of the fire of judgment at the cross. With the cross comes judgment. Judgment on unbelief and judgment on rebellion. But, this is very important. This is not a judgment that Jesus will pour out on others. He's going to do that at his return. This judgment will be poured out on him. He knows that the cross is going to be excruciatingly painful for him. Nevertheless, He's eager to accomplish his saving work out of love for his father and out of love for his bride. He says, I am in great... Well, first he says that, that he wishes, he would, that, that it was already kindled in verse 49. Then he says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He yearns for this to take place. He yearns for this to be accomplished. And not just because of the physical pain, but because of the results of that. Because it is going to mean the maximum glorification for his father and it's going to mean the redemption of his bride. The fire of God's wrath towards the elect is poured out on and extinguished by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
according to the covenant of redemption. This covenant, covenant that was made in eternity past between the Father and the Son to save the elect, the Son would suffer for the sins of His people and be blessed as receiving them as His bride. You can see this all over the Scriptures. Perhaps, though, most clearly in Psalm 2, 7-9, which, which speaks of this as a divine decree between Yahweh and the Son. And Isaiah 53 10 to 12, where Yahweh is described as crushing him as a guilt offering. As he bore the iniquities of his people and then gives him, and then he is given the reward for his atoning suffering. So then the plan of redemption, God's plan of redemption requires the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He must undergo the suffering of sin, so bearing God's judgment for the elect. Jesus yearns for the accomplishment of his work. He longs to suffer for, to save his bride. Despite the agony that is before him, despite the blood and the sweat and the tears, bearing his people's sins and his father's wrath, he is zealous. He is zealous to endure it all, to purchase salvation for his people for the glory of God, his Father. And he is full of anguish until it is accomplished, until it is finished. The, the word that is, is used here, accomplished, is the same verb that, that Jesus uses in John 19.30 when he bows his head and gives up the Spirit and says, it is finished. And until that time, his entire ministry is overshadowed by the cross. The cross is why he came. The Lord is zealous for the salvation of the elect. Do you share Christ's zeal for the salvation of the elect? Now, of course, you can't share it in degree, but you can share it in kind. You can have the same kind of zeal that Christ has for the elect. If you love Jesus, you will love people, especially His people. And you want to see people become His people. You want to share the gospel with people so they will repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus, and become His people. That love will motivate you to proclaim this message to others. Now, we're going to be heading out again very soon downtown to proclaim the gospel on Saturday mornings in the street evangelist. And I want to invite you and encourage you to join us, to, to come with us. But if you can't come, pray. Pray for, for our efforts. Partner with us in what we're doing. And you can be every but, bit as much a part of it as if you were there yourself. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be giving out gospel tracts, gospel packages to, to hang on our neighbor's doors. Every family in the church will get a bunch of these to give to their neighbors. And you can, you can knock on the door if you like, or you can simply hang it on their doorknob. Now, maybe you feel, well, I'm not really comfortable going to share the gospel with a stranger, but you can do that. You can take this opportunity to share the gospel with your neighbors. 
Let Christ be your example. Remember his burning desire to die for your sins and ask him to fan into a flame. The desire to live for him. Not the least of which in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Brothers and sisters, you have the answer to their greatest problem. People have all kinds of ideas of what they think their problems are, but their problems are not their problems. Ultimately, their problems is that they are in rebellion against God and under His just wrath. You have the solution for their greatest problem. You have the antidote for their deadly disease. Now, maybe you don't feel sufficient for the task. You aren't. You aren't sufficient for the task. Let's look for a moment, just for a moment, at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 7 to 12. Look at verse 7. You have this treasure. It's the gospel. You have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. In your weak, frail body, you have the treasure of the gospel. And in so doing, you show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to you. You have the ability to share the gospel with people because it's not, it's not ultimately you who's doing it. It's God who's doing it through you. You can't make anybody repent. You can't even make yourself repent. Repentance is a gift from God. You can't even make yourself desire to go and share the gospel with somebody. God does that in you too. Let's not be hyper-Calvinistic here though. You have a responsibility. And where you see lack in your life, and you will, ask God to fill it. Ask God to change your heart and make you not just willing, but zealous like our Lord was, to share the gospel with others. Paul continues here. You follow in Jesus' steps. Right? Look at verse 10. You are always carrying about, about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And so we're following Jesus. In death, essentially. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life, well, there's being the apostle, but life in you. You will follow in Jesus' steps. You will face persecution. You will face rejection. You will be struck down, but you will not be destroyed. Not in the second death. Because you're always carrying about in your body the death of Jesus so that his life may be manifested in your body. Be confident. That if you are Christ's, he will enable you, he will empower you to be able to proclaim the gospel to others and he may be pleased through you to make others become Christ's through your ministry. Until that time that we die in this life or our Lord returns, we will experience pain, we will experience suffering. 
We will experience the, the, the fires of, of, pure, of, of, of persecution, of, of division, and also the fires of, of purification. So this takes us to the another two aspects of the coming fire, the fire of division and the, and the purifying fire of sanctification. First, the fire of division, verses 51 to 53. John the Baptist refers to both the fire of division and the fire of sanctification in Luke 3, 16 and 17. We looked at this some months ago. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he was coming is mightier than I, whose the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Notice again the link between with, with baptism and fire. Let's look at the division though first. Is what he describes in verses 51 to 53, the division that he brings through his work on the cross. He asks in verse 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? There's another I have come statement, another mission statement. What did Jesus come to do? Did he come to bring peace? Well, I think most of us, at least initially, would say yes. Jesus did come to bring peace. After all, didn't the angels proclaim peace at his birth in Luke 2.14? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Didn't Jesus repeatedly tell people that he healed to go in peace throughout Luke's gospel account? Didn't Peter preach the, the, the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, Acts 10, Acts 10.36? Didn't the apostle Paul proclaim peace in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. He himself is our peace. He has broken down in this flesh the wall of us, the dividing wall of hostility. He will make one new man instead of two, so making peace. He came and preached peace to you who are far and peace to you who are near. So yes, in a sense, Jesus did come to bring peace. But again, we need to consider the context, the immediate context of what is being said here, and the, the biblical context. So, <clears throat> Jesus says, you think I came, I, do you think I've come to give peace on earth? He doesn't wait for an answer. He says, no, I tell you, but rather division. Yes, peace is part of the story, but peace is only part of the story. And there's only peace for those who are at peace with God through the gospel. There's only peace for those who are at peace with God through the gospel. We've seen this clearly already in Luke as well. In Simeon's prophecy in Luke 2, 34, where Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. Division. In John the Baptist's proclamation we just looked at in 3.17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Division. Jesus says something similar in, in John 9.39, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who 
C, may become blind. Another purpose, another mission statement. Think of Jesus' judgment. When he, when he comes in glory, he will declare in Matthew, we see declares in Matthew 25, he will divide between the sheep and the goats. Division. The sheep will inherit the kingdom, but the goats depart into eternal life. So then Jesus is establishing judgment through his work on the cross. Not only is he reconciling man to God, but he's also crushing the serpent's head. Jesus in the cross is inaugurating the final judgment against Satan and against his brood. So yes, that judgment is not yet, but with the cross, Jesus inaugurated it. Jesus set it up so that when he returns, he will accomplish fully and finally judgment against sin. So then Jesus does come to bring the fire of judgment on unbelievers too, but not yet. The judgment is not yet. But the division is now. And the division shows that there is judgment to come. Jesus did not come in the sense to bring peace, but a sword. Now we've seen this throughout Luke's gospel, that Jesus has been, been turning up the heat as his ministry of the cross approaches. Jesus is the dividing line. He is not merely Jesus the wise man or Jesus the moral teacher. He is Jesus Christ, the crucified Savior. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God the Son. And there is no unity with those who have any less than that perspective of Jesus, even if they call themselves Christian. If they have anything less than that perspective of Jesus, they are clearly not Christians, and there can be no true unity with them. What partnership has, has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does the believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-16. Now when Jesus preaches here in this passage, verses 52 and 53, that, that it's going to be a house divided, three against two, and two against three, that, that there will be, the members will take sides on this issue of who Jesus is. Jesus preached this in a culture where family ties were almost universally accepted as vitally important, far more so than in our own culture. So in that time, this was an especially hard saying. Jesus says similarly in Matthew 10, 36 and 37, that a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Then he came not to bring peace, but a sword. That whoever loves, though even close family members, more than Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. If you are not willing to place your allegiance to Christ higher than every other human relationship, you are not worthy of Christ. Now, your salvation has been paid in full by Christ. But following Christ comes at a cost. 
take up your cross and follow him. Those who follow Christ must follow Christ to the cross. Following Christ often means rejection and pain. That pain will often come from those who are closest to you. The fire of division there leads, leads to division. So the fire of the fire that Jesus came to bring leads to the fire of division, but it also that fire of division also leads to the fire of purification. Again, this is also in verses 51 to 53. This is the third part of the fire that Jesus came to bring, the, the purifying, fire, purifying fire of sanctification. Do you want to be conformed to the image of Christ? And be treated like Christ was treated. That's arguably one of the quickest ways to be made like Jesus is to be treated like Jesus was treated. First Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When you are mistreated and rejected by others, especially those close to you, you draw closer to Christ. In pain, you go to him, and in your pain, you grow in him. Now, many of us have experienced something of what Jesus is describing here in verses 52 and 53. Division in the the most intimate of human relationships within the family. Many of us have experienced the sword of division within our own families. This is excruciatingly painful. Or at least it should be excruciatingly painful. Jesus is the cause of division. Don't let your attitude or your behavior be the cause of division and then blame it on Christ. Don't act like a jerk and then say it's because of Christ. Don't be quarrelsome. Be kind. Correct with gentleness. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. Don't be quick to write off your families who reject you. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 12, 18. You have been sovereignly placed in the family to which you belong. You are there to shine the light of the gospel. Your unbelieving family members aren't there to be a hindrance to that. They're there to be the beneficiaries of the light shining through you. And this will be a major source of sanctification. As you rely on God to help you to respond to them in Christ-like ways, when they, even when they treat you disrespectfully, perhaps especially when they treat you disrespectfully. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21. And only the Lord knows, but but perhaps even your family members will change sides through your example. Yes, you must proclaim the gospel to them. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17. But are you adorning the gospel with your attitude and your actions? So here in Luke 12, 53, as Jesus describes the division in the family unit that, that, that allegiance to him brings, he's, he's here quoting from 
from Micah 7, 6. But the whole passage is informative. Matthew, sorry, Micah, uh, Micah 7, 5 to 7. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. God will, my God will hear me. So in those times when, when your, even your family members are rejecting you because of Jesus, look to Jesus. You might become more distant from your family, but you will draw closer to God and His family. You will love God and love His people more as pressure from unbelievers and even especially those from our own families, mounts. This is, again, a source of sanctification. God, God throws us together in the midst of trials. That the world may be coming after you. Even your own family might be ganging up on you. The world may be wanting to destroy you. Your own family, three against two. But you're not alone. Even if you are the only Christian in your family, you are not alone. Many of us have experienced rejection in our, from our own families because of Christ. Blood relations have rejected us for our allegiance to Christ, but we have found great joy in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have been unified in the blood of Christ. So the angels in Luke 2 were right. Jesus did come to bring peace among those with whom he is pleased. Notice that peace is, is not just peace with God, it's among those with whom he is pleased. Peter was right. There is peace through Jesus Christ. Paul was right. Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility between us and God, between us, between God and people, and between people who are at peace with God. Jesus came to bring peace between God and people and between people who are at peace with God. Brothers and sisters, our unity does not come from anything less than the blood of Christ. We're not unified by our ethnicity, our background, our language, our personality, our opinion, our political views. Our unity has been purchased by Christ. Our unity does not come from sharing common opinions, common attitudes, or common politics, or anything like that, but having a common share in Christ. Our unity comes from having a common share in Christ. Jesus made peace between us and God by enduring the Father's wrath for our sins. He also made peace between Christians with others for whom he endured the Father's wrath. Jesus prayed for our unity in 
his high priestly prayer in John 17, 21. That they may be one, he prayed, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So our peace is evangelistic. Our unity is evangelistic. Jesus says it as well in John 13, 34, and 35 as well. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this peace that we have with God, this unity that we have with God was purchased as God made war on his son in our place. And then as we, we walk out this, this peace as Christians, this is, this, is not, this is not unity at the expense of truth. We are unified in the truth of God's word. Now, godly men and women may, may differ on how they understand a specific text or the application of that text. But we can still have unity with them in Christ. I'm rejoicing over the, the prayer time that I, I enjoy with other pastors in the city who also hold to the inerrancy and authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Now, some have different understandings on some areas, but we are unified in Christ. We're unified in, in all of the most important things of God's Word. I'm rejoicing over the unity that we enjoy in this church, in the primary doctrines, and, and in almost all of the secondary and tertiary ones. We must be zealous for the unity between Christians in our own local church and with those from other churches. Brothers and sisters, we are going to be together with each other and with them at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to enjoy fellowship with them before Christ for all eternity. With all the saints that are, that are now living in this, in this church, in, in this city, in this country, and around the world, and, and even throughout history. We're going to enjoy this fellowship with each other that is part of the blessing of the gospel that has been purchased for us by Christ. Three against two. We have people who are with us. God has reserved for himself those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so we stand with them in unity because of Christ. So let's enjoy the unity that Christ has purchased for us now. It's one of the benefits of the gospel. Let me say this again. Our unity does not come from having a common background or common opinions or, or common language or, or common jobs or, or, or sports teams. Our unity comes from having a common share in Christ. Our unity comes from having a common share in Christ. Jesus Christ did come to bring fire to the earth. He did come to bring judgment. Jesus came to bring fire through the cross. Jesus came to bring fire through division. Jesus came to bring fire through sanctification. Will you be consumed by the fire? Or will your sin be consumed by the fire? Will your dross be consumed by the fire? Brothers and sisters, 
cling to Christ, cling to each other in Christ, for the glory of God, for the building of his church, and for the good of his people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we marvel at that great work you accomplished for us on the cross. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that, that you bore the judgment that we deserve. That you were punished as a sinner. That we could go free, declared righteous through your imputed righteousness, your good deeds credited to our account. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you did not do this for us as individuals. But as a people, as your church, we praise you that you died for your church. Help us, Lord Jesus, to live for your church. By reaching out to others who are not yet part of your church, that that you may be pleased to save some for your glory and for the building of your church. And, And Lord, help us to live for the unity that we have with each other that has been purchased for us by Christ. And may that take place all the more as the world turns up the heat against us. May we run to you and to each other. May we be ministers of your grace in each other's lives. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.